black thick cape with a knife hole in it. It's 1664, we are in the Netherlands and the man that wears the cape now and was wearing it during his assassination attempt is hunched over the table as he works on grinding a lens. He never mended the cape and he likes to wear it for the same reasons as Roman war heroes had a slave behind them whispering at their ears during their triumph parades. Memento Mori, the slave whispered in Rome. Remember death, don't get too cocky, she's coming for all of us, even you. Caute reads the personal sigil of our man with a rose and its thorns under it. Be cautious, the world is not ready for you. He keeps polishing the glass surface until the final result is absolutely smooth and impeccably perfect. The same words that we could use to describe his intellectual work and especially his masterpiece, a book called simply Ethics, that he will soon publish and will be his gift to posterity. The years spent grinding lenses will take their toll, and when he dies, in 1677, 13 years from now, it will be because of the glass dust accumulated in his lungs. This need for caution doesn't only come from the assassination attempt, but also from his complicated relationship with the religious community he belongs to by birth. In 1656, eight years ago, the strongest punishment possible was exerted unto this man by his people. An excommunication or harem by which the community as a whole rejected him and everything he represented. The reason for this were his writings, and by extension his thoughts, that were described as, quote, evil opinions and abominable heresies. End quote. The excommunication itself was not something unique in those days, even though the text used for his sounds unusually cruel. Let's hear a fragment of it so that you can see what I mean. Quote, cursed be he by day, and cursed be he by night. Cursed be he when he lies down, and cursed be he when he rises up. Cursed be he when he goes out, cursed be he when he comes in. The Lord will not forgive him. The fury and seal of the Lord will burn against this man and bring upon him all the curses that are written in the book of laws. And may the Lord erase his name from under the heavens. End quote. Each of the words sounds indeed like a shot from a firing squad. The name of our excommunicated friend is Baruch Espinosa and he is considered one of the greatest philosophers ever. As other intellectuals of the time, he kept abundant and frequent correspondence with scholars and readers of his work. As these letters were never intended for publication, they reveal a side of him that we rarely see in his more academic works. Probably the most fascinating amongst these letters are the ones he exchanged with Willem van Vliegenberg a grain broker also living in the Netherlands. They are captivating in both content and form. They tackle the fascinating subject of the nature and essence of evil, and they tell a captivating story about the two individuals behind them. There is a total of eight letters, and I'll go through them one by one, concentrating on the subject of evil and the consequences thereof. For those of you not familiarized with Spinoza, 
are provide some quick and basic idea about his conception of God. My intention is not to be exhaustive, but only to allow you to follow what I'm trying to convey here without any previous knowledge. Please bear with me and just think of this as the scaffolding that will allow you to accompany me where I'm going. The quickest way to describe Spinoza's God is to mention that instead of conceiving him and his creation as two different things, as it had been mostly the case up until that moment, he defends that there is only, strictly speaking, a single substance that he actually calls God. This being is, at the same time, naturans, creator, and naturata, created. So there is an identity between God and the totality of what there is. There is nothing outside God because, quite simply, He is everything that was, is, and will be. From the moment in which God is one with His creation, Spinoza also concludes that all anthropomorphism or resemblance between God and human beings just doesn't make any sense. God is not kind, evil, jealous, needy, or choleric. Those are just human attributes, and any relation of them with God is either metaphoric or quite simply wrong. After this quick introduction, let's move to the letters themselves, numbered 18 to 23 in any edition of his collected correspondence. The first one is dated from the 12th December 1664, and in it Blichenbach comes across as a fan, describing himself as somebody who is only driven by the, quote, desire of pure truth, end quote. Amongst all sciences, he writes, he finds his pleasure in none other more than in metaphysics. He has clearly read Spinoza's work up until that moment. Bear in mind that the ethics hasn't been published yet, and he'd like to discuss about certain aspects of the philosopher's texts that his stomach, quote, hasn't been able to properly digest. End quote. Blichenberg seems to have mainly issues with understanding evil in Spinoza's system. God is the cause of all substances and all movement, so by definition, he argues, he is also the cause of the substance of the soul and all of the soul's movements. If we follow Spinoza, we'd have to, according to Blichenberg, either deny the existence of evil or attribute all of it to God. In other words, Either evil doesn't have any place in Spinoza's system, or, if it does, it is caused by God, as he is all that there is. With hindsight, the example Bligenberg chooses to explain his problem already reveals some things that we'll find out later. Amongst all possible examples, he chooses the biblical one of Adam and the apple to make his point. God is, following Spinoza, the cause of both, he says, Adam's soul and her movements. Therefore, if Adam decides to eat the apple, either we accept that Adam eating the apple is not evil at all, or if we find ourselves unable to accept this, then this evil is caused by God. Needless to say, Blisenberg doesn't want to choose between these two options, denying the original sin or attributing it to God and would like Spinoza to help him find a solution. Probably predicting that the philosopher might be suspicious about his question, this first letter ends in a conciliatory manner. 
Bligenberg reiterates that his sole objective is the pursuit of truth, and that he'd appreciate Spinoza being able to help him understand. To be fair, and judging from this letter, the whole affair sounds pretty much like a love letter from a fan to his favorite intellectual. Things will pretty soon change. In Spinoza's answer in his letter of the 5th January 1665, he sounds delighted. He welcomes the possibility of exchanging letters with Bligenberg and begins by mentioning that he's going to do his best to contribute, quote, to a better knowledge and a sincere friendship, end quote, with him. He continues immediately by blandly stating that he, quote, can't concede that sins and evil are something positive, and even less that there exists or that it happens something against the will of God, end quote. So faced with the two options Bligenberg was describing before, Spinoza decides to affirm both. No, there is no evil in Adam eating the apple, and yes, everything that happens does so because of God. This is the center itself of the whole discussion, and a point to which we are going to come back again later. The philosopher develops this idea just after the quoted sentence, by stating that, quote, Everything that exists, considered by itself, without any relation to anything else, implies perfection, that extends as far as the essence of the thing itself. End quote. Let's stop here for a second, as understanding this is key to the whole discussion. What Spinoza is defending here is that the only way we can conceive some imperfection or lack in things is by comparing them with others. Everything is fully perfect the way it is. We are the ones bringing in an imperfection in reality with our thought. Let's imagine a woman that is missing an arm and try to think about why we consider there is something lacking in her. We may consider her imperfect only because we compare her to other women who do in fact have two arms. This lack of an arm, quote, is nothing positive, end quote and is only considered as such, quote, according to our intellect and not according to God's intellect, end quote. The absence or lack of something is purely a construct of the mind and doesn't correspond to anything positive or effective in reality. This way of thinking in terms of comparison is caused by the fact that, quote, we express by a single definition all the singular things of the same genre, for example, all of the ones that have the external image of woman, end quote. As finite minds, compared with the infinite mind of God, we are not able to grasp reality without going through concepts or abstractions. Our finite minds work abstractly, by grouping individual beings under a single category, woman in our example, and losing precision and specificity as we go more and more abstract. If all the women and men we ever met had one arm, we'd never consider that an imperfection, and we'd never even consider there would be something lacking in them. God's infinite mind operates in the exact opposite way. He, quote, doesn't know abstractly things or forms general definitions as the ones mentioned, and he doesn't give them more reality than the one he's conceded to them. End quote. God grasps beings in a concrete and specific way, 
and doesn't need to use abstract concepts as we do. He can grasp intuitively and not through reasoning. Far from being something to be proud of, abstract concepts are, in the end, our finite minds surrender to the infinite multiplicity of the real. Spinoza considers that with this answer the subject is clearly closed. Evil doesn't have any positive reality and everything is caused by God. Before ending his letter he can't help but go a little bit farther with Bligenberg's example of Adam and the apple. Understanding from the Bible he writes that when God told Adam he shouldn't eat from the tree of knowledge he was stating a prohibition is a gross misinterpretation. What God was doing, in fact, was informing Adam that the apple was poisonous and that eating from it meant death. He was, in fact, making Adam wiser. And him eating from the apple shows that he was not intelligent enough to take the right decision. The third letter with the answer from Blidenberg is dated 16th January 1665. In it, the grain broker starts to reveal himself as somebody seemingly quite different from the purely intellectual truth seeker he described himself as in his first letter. He writes, quote, I have two rules according to which I try to philosophize always. The first is the clear and distinct concept of my understanding and the second one, the revelated word or will of God, end quote. In case of conflict, he continues, quote, I prefer to tend towards the second, for the simple reason that it proceeds from the Almighty, end quote. One can almost picture a tired sigh from Spinoza after reading these sentences. If we picture Blisenberg as a narrow-minded religious man that refuses to even entertain the possibility of something against the scripture, would be very wrong though. By following a religious way of thinking, Blisenberg is going to surprisingly shed some revealing light on Spinoza's thinking. Blisenberg fires on all cylinders straight away and asks Spinoza to consider the action of killing. Quote, as it is a positive action, he writes, God collaborates in it, but the effect of the action, namely the destruction of a being, and the dissolution of a creature of God, is he going to ignore it?" End quote. The follow-up is simply genius, and shows that Blisenberg is very far from being dim-witted, as he continues by writing that, quote, perhaps you'll answer the acts, as I describe them, are entirely good, and don't imply any evil, but then I can't understand what is it that you call evil. End quote. Still not satisfied and seemingly getting excited by his own chain of arguments, he continues by stating that, quote, in that case, the whole world would fall into an eternal and uninterrupted confusion, and us, human beings, would turn into beasts, end quote. His last argument is that if God has no knowledge of evil, then it is even less likely that he's going to punish it. Quote, why then, he writes, would I not secretly do what my passions suggest me to do and kill, for example, secretly the man that prevents me somehow from getting what I want?" End quote. This letter reveals a fascinating struggle in Blichenberg, in which one can almost hear him begging between the lines to Spinoza to show him some way of reconciling both his religious thinking and the philosopher's thoughts, a 
as he clearly can't let go of any of the two. Espinosa's answer from the 28th January 1665 is simply delightful. He starts by saying that after reading the first letter from Bligenberg, he was almost sure that they shared the same opinion, and that they would both very greatly profit from this epistolar exchange. After reading the second, though, he has understood that they are so far apart that he doubts the exchange will teach any of the two anything. He then proceeds to explain that, quote, regarding privation, it is not the act of privating, but the pure and simple lack, who is by itself nothing, end quote. He then moves to the example of the blind man, writing that, quote, it is only when we consider this man comparing his nature with that of others or his past nature that we affirm that sight is part of his nature, and therefore we say he lacks it now. Quote, if, he continues, we consider this from God's and his nature's perspective, we don't have any more reason to say that this man lacks vision than we do to say a rock does. As we said before, considering things by themselves, there is no way to express anything negative about them, as they are pure positive doing. It is only when we compare some beings to other beings, or different states of the same beings, we consider equivalent, that we can start putting them in competition with each other, and establishing which ones are more perfect. Bligenberg doesn't decide to stop the correspondence even after Spinoza expresses doubts about the utility of it, and he answers on the 19th February 1665. He begins by expressing his disappointment with the harshness of Spinoza's answer, and he seems genuinely interested in clarifying some of his remaining doubts. First of all, demonstrating a clarity of thought that is surprising, by going straight to the heart of the subject, he seeks confirmation from Spinoza that, quote, the only thing that belongs to the essence of the thing is whatever the thing possesses at the moment it is perceived, end quote. We can call this the instantaneity of the essence. Secondly, he argues, according to the philosopher, everything and everybody is expressing God's essence in exactly the same way and to the exact same power. The only possible comparison then amongst different beings or even different states of the same being is to be done, he continues, by a finite mind and doesn't have any counterpart in reality. How can then Spinoza write that the virtuous man is to be considered closer to God and defend that his closeness is objective, and not only a construct of the mind? Why should we be moved towards something virtuous or sinful if everything is one and the same? One can't feel but have sympathy for Bilgenberg at this point, because the doubts he's expressing are exactly the same ones we, as readers of Spinoza, have. Suspecting already the answer the philosopher is going to give, Bligenberg mentions that whoever avoids sinful things quite simply because they don't agree with his or her nature doesn't have too many reasons to be proud of his or her virtue. How would it be possible, he concludes, for somebody for whom sinful or evil things agree with her or his nature to avoid this sinful road if the agreement or not with one's nature is the sole criteria for choice? In the next letter, dated 13th March 1665, Spinoza starts by mentioning that he doesn't understand Bligenberg's disappointment, 
and goes straight to his reasoning. Trying to conclude as clearly as possible, he writes that, quote, God is absolutely and effectively the cause of everything that has an essence, end quote. So, if Bligenberg considers that evil has an essence, then God is indeed the cause of evil. The fact that the actions of sinful and virtuous men depend in the same way from God doesn't mean that we can say they are the same thing, he clarifies. For example, he continues, even though, quote, the mouse and the angel, happiness and sadness depend equally from God, the mouse can't be a kind of angel or sadness a kind of happiness, end quote. Actions, he clarifies, quote, are differentiated from each other not only in grade, but in essence, end quote. To conclude the question about the person for whom sinful acts agree with his or her nature, Spinoza is surprisingly coherent. He writes that, quote, if somebody would clearly see that, in committing crimes, he could enjoy a life and essence that is clearly better and more perfect than practicing virtue, he would be stupid not to do it, end quote. The next letter is the last one in the series, from Bligenberg to Spinoza and is dated 27th March 1665. In terms of content, there is nothing especially interesting for the point we are trying to make here today. By what is written in this letter, we can see, though, that the two men have met face to face in between. From some references, it looks like the book called Ethics has been the main subject of the conversation. We don't know whether Bligenberg just decided to show up at Spinoza's residence or the invitation from the philosopher has been lost. We can almost imagine them on opposite sides of a table, Spinoza with his cape wrapped around his body, patiently going through the drafts of the book the philosopher was still working on. I can also quite clearly picture Bligenberg taking notes, trying hard not to be seduced by the inescapable attraction of this fully illuminated labyrinth of words Spinoza is patiently building.